Well, happy Mother's Day. Let me add my welcome to you if you're a mom. I uh, have a wife who's a wonderful mother. It has been evidenced in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the things I've always really appreciated about Carolyn is that uh, she has this really unique relationship with my daughter, who's going to graduate from college next month. And uh, the two of them, uh, uh, it's not one, she, Carolyn's a great mom. She's not like the cool mom that's like, go ahead, use drugs in our house as long as you stay in the house, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but she gets along really well with, with well, everybody, really. But it's, it's been one of those experiences where I haven't had the the experience of having to work alongside a partner who's going at it with their teenage daughter. Um, I've experienced other things in parenting. I can share those with you another time. Uh, but as a Mother's Day bonus today, I, I wanted to read an encouraging note from uh, one of the Today Show's bloggers, a woman by the name of Susie Garlick, who has some Mother's Day thoughts for parents of teen daughters. And she writes... You are feeling the hurt and growing pains that moms experience as your little bundle of joy becomes less and little less joyful. We long for that sweet girl in pigtails to look at us and say, Mommy, I love you, followed by a big hug that can last for what seems like forever. Bubble popped, that time has passed, and boy, does it hurt. We now get rolling eyes, slamming doors, and cold shoulders. This can be infuriating. Be aware of the feelings behind your anger. I promise it is fear and sadness. We fear that we are raising a cruel and mean girl, and we are sad because we are slowly watching our daughter grow up and leave the nest. Now, truth be told, if you're raising healthy kids, they want to leave your home. That is actually a good sign that you're doing it right. Uh, kids who are afraid of their own shadow and never can, can be outside of your presence, <clears throat> that's not what God has called any of us to in parenting, in spite of what uh, your instincts might tell you. Uh, when you get to the season, though, of teens and 20s, oftentimes what you experience is that moment where you realize you're more of a resource than a, in a relationship at this stage. And I'm told that passes, and that's a good thing, too. But I think parents probably have a better perspective on wanting relationships with their kids, but their kids seeing them more as a utility or someplace they go to get stuff instead of like, you know, hey, I thought we were going to hang out. I remember once, and I'm sure he'll kill me later for mentioning it, uh, but when my son was a teenager, I asked him if he wanted to go to a movie, and his response was, with you? <laughs> and, uh, and you go, you know, you just realize that's a good thing that he wants to be with other people and his own man. But you, you kind of sort of know what it feels like to, 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 to experience uh, a, a sense of being a utility instead of somebody that you're in relationship with. And today in our scriptures in the Gospel of John... Uh, we're going to see in the behavior of the masses following Jesus some things about ourselves that might be disappointing to be reminded of. However, I, my hope is that within this narrative, uh, you wouldn't hear 
the voice of an angry overlord telling you you're not worthy, so don't even bother trying to be his friend. You're so bad at it. But instead, a call from our gracious Savior who's saying, I understand how broken you are, asking you to enter into friendship with me. Uh, A little context we have in this sixth chapter of John seen two pretty significant miracles. One is Jesus feeds 5,000 and then the guys get in the boat and head over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus decides to catch up by walking on water to them. And now we're arrived at the other side of the lake. People are wondering, how did you get here, Jesus? We saw the guys leaving the boat. We only saw one boat leave. What gives? We are experiencing again the distinct writing of the Gospel of John in that as compared to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, John is not necessarily trying to create a comprehensive history of the life of Jesus. You can compare that to the Gospel of Luke, and it's like a cradle-to-the-grave historical account. And then he even has a sequel in the book of Acts, where Luke continues the saga. In John's case, um, he's trying to present a few signs and teachings that would compel belief in Jesus. He tells us in John 20, verses 30 and 31, that uh, these things are written that people would believe in Jesus and find life in his name. And so we're about to move into a series of teachings that have famously become known as the I Am teachings. I am the bread of life is where we are, but then there's I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And as we'll see even more clearly spelled out in the weeks ahead, uh, the use of the words I am are very intentional. Jesus is making a claim again to his own divinity. John is putting that out there for us. The 35th verse of John 6 gives us this first I am. I am the bread of life. And then the verses in chapter 6 that follow all kind of um, unpack that at varying levels. The first four, five verses beyond that, verses 36 through 40, read Jesus saying, after I am the bread of life, I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Throughout this First, I am discourse. We're going to discover some important things about our relationship with Jesus. And the Savior is going to point out things that we all likely know instinctively. Maybe we haven't put words to them. Maybe we don't want to admit that about ourselves. But the first of these is that it's possible to use Him and not actually love Him. Again, from the text in verse 25. The crowd regathers, reconstitutes on the other side of the sea. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus tells these folks, you're not really coming after me. You just had a really good lunch. So you're not really interested in me. You're kind of interested in the, like the perks of being around me, the benefits of being around people who like me. But you yourselves don't seem all that interested in the pursuit of me. This is a painful truth for Christians to come to terms with, is that we often revert back to living as if Jesus exists to serve us and not the other way around. Now, he did say he came to serve, but that's a whole lot different than us demanding him serve us. He willingly and graciously does that to serve as an example to us and to show his love for us. But it's not all that dissimilar to what happens when you have your own children. Moms who have kids know this, is that there's this terrible turning that takes place after you shower your children with love. Sometimes they will then think, you owe me that. And you have to go, oh, hold on a minute here. Let's, let's reframe the relationship again. Mom and dad don't owe you a thing. Right? We owe the Lord care for you, but you are the recipient of God's grace through us. And let's make sure we revisit that again and again. And you will all the way until they graduate from college. It's an experience of our nature that we will not only be ungrateful in our sinful brokenness, but we won't even remember that people have been good to us, particularly parents. Like the crowds who are following Jesus, we then have to face the ugly reality that sometimes we're actually using Jesus and have little interest in him. It's evidenced by a lack of pursuing him as a person. And all of us could say, we're really busy. We live in a really crowded city with really bad traffic and a really busy schedule. And at times we can gauge how connected we are with the Savior by how frequently we would talk to him independent of saying, I have a need that I'd like you to meet. Now hear me clearly, Jesus has commanded you to bring your needs to him. But I think it's a healthy barometer to say, when's the last time I went to him just to have a conversation? Just to have intimacy with my father, independent of a crisis in my life that mandates me talking to him. It becomes evident in my life that I haven't been pursuing Jesus by the way I treat other people. Now, I'll ask him for something sometimes, and instead of immediately giving me what I want, he will take his time, which often is nowhere near my schedule, and the purpose for that would be to show me the incorrect posture of my heart. And then like a spoiled child, I may begin to act as if I'm entitled to the gifts that he's freely given out of his grace. Jesus has said, instead of pursuing stuff, you're supposed to pursue the Savior. Well, Matthew said in Matthew 6.33, or Jesus said, as recorded there, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these other things, they'll be added to you as well. 
Jesus is telling these folks, pursue food that lasts for eternity. He's talking about the food of the soul. That which you're starving for in your deepest of being. Namely, a relationship of intimacy with your Creator. Paul said this to the Colossians similarly in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The crowds were baffled that Jesus had made it to the other side. All they could think about was, what secret transportation did you take to get here? They were thinking of Him in completely earthly terms and and fairly preoccupied with, are you going to do another food-like distribution? Or, you know, what, what is it about this vast sea of humanity that was a, an attractive thing for this crowd? They failed to actually connect with who Jesus really was. More importantly, they, they missed completely what Jesus was trying to communicate through the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, which is to say, He was their soul's sustenance. And so we see Jesus go on a bread of life tear in this chapter where he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life who comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 41, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. In verse 55, my flesh is true food, which would have been a disturbing statement to a group of Jews who weren't even allowed to eat pork. And now Jesus is talking about eating his flesh. He's speaking metaphorically about the great need that we have and how that's only going to get met through encounter with Jesus. I mean, they don't get the bread of life metaphor, and so in just a few verses, Jesus pummels this. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I hope you get this. This is the point. I'm here to help you find satisfaction for your deepest longing. John Piper says this, quote, this gospel is written to reveal the glory of Christ, not mainly the glory of his gifts, so that we would not make the mistake, but would see Christ himself as our treasure are all satisfying bread from heaven and have eternal life. If you don't have intimacy with Jesus, if the interaction with the Holy Spirit who lives in the believer is not a regular part of your life, if I don't genuinely know Jesus, we all will likely use Him instead of loving Him. second thing we find out is that it's possible to do His works and not really know Jesus. Verses 28 through 31 read, They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm fascinated by Jesus' interaction with these folks because I've had this conversation with people before that said, you know, what religion is really all about is good works. 
and, and they act as if Jesus said that. And in reality, it seems like Jesus is saying, yeah, imitating me is a big part of this. We'll get to that. But when confronted with this, they, they say, what are we supposed to be doing? What's the act of God? What is the work of the Father? And he says, here we go. Believe in me. Actually have a relationship with me. And it's remarkable to hear people think, does that mean you can do the work of God and not really be in relationship with Jesus? And the answer to that question is, yes. They, it seems in verse 28, thought that religious experience was just working and being good and trying to earn merit before God. Jesus quickly reminds them that he's calling them to an intimate fellowship, a return to the Creator who's come in the flesh and in their case was standing toe-to-toe with them. Belief, faith, these are not just an, an agreeing with or an assenting to theological perspectives or biblical claims. It's a genuine faith where a person is seeing Jesus for who He is and pursuing a deeper knowledge and understanding and a renewed passion to honor Him. A lot of that will take place simply through imitation. We've been told in the Scriptures to follow Paul as he followed Christ and to be imitators of Christ. And anyone who would claim to follow Jesus must walk as He did. And you think about that even in our culture. It's you imitate those who you most admire. We, we emulate those who we esteem most highly. Real faith has this component of obedience to imitate Christ, but it's, it's founded on the notion that you'd actually have intimate knowledge and relationship with it. You'd go, I so admire this person with whom I walk that I'm actually going to begin imitating them. Living faith produces this type of intimacy and this type of passion. Dead faith, one that is nominal, surface in nature, lifeless, a drudgery, that doesn't result in a passionate imitating. James, Jesus' half-brother, says it like this in James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead faith. He's not saying that the way you and I are okay with God is by doing good things. He's saying that if there are no evidences of this imitating Jesus in our lives at all, then there probably doesn't exist a genuine living faith. But we, from today's passage, also see that the works of God, the work of God is not primarily doing good things, but believing in who Jesus is that naturally produces these good things. We are, according to Scripture, called to a genuine walk with the person of Christ. See, works have this really interesting capacity, too, to be used to make oneself feel better, uh, to 
develop human pride that I'm a good person, so I do these nice things for people. I'm involved with these organizations that do these good things. We even sometimes say we're going to use these good works because they make me feel better. You know, a good work is a good work is a good work, and I'm thankful for any good work. But a person doesn't get to check the I am righteous column simply because they did some so-called good work. I cannot say, hey, homeless person, God bless you. I'm going to give you the change in my pocket because it makes me feel good and then tick one of the, aren't I a great guy? If I did it for me, then I did it for me. Now, I'm thankful that the person got helped, but I've got to be slow to start like, you know, getting all weepy about how great a person I am. It, it is important for us to recognize that when Jesus calls us to good works, it's in the context of friendship with him. When these Jews came to him and said, what are we supposed to be doing? What, must, what do we have to do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who sent. It's, it's remarkable. His response to them is, acknowledge first who I am, your need for me. Jesus used the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew chapter 7 to describe that moment when people who ostensibly did mighty things for him in multiple different gospels, we see that they helped the poor and did a lot of seemingly good church activity. And then they come to terms with the realization that what Jesus was asking for was real relationship with him. And they have to face this down. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, just because you call him Lord doesn't mean you're doing his will. His will is that you would know him. And knowing him is more than just going about life doing good things. It's about genuine encounter with his presence in your life. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And I must pause at this juncture to say, as we sit, there are people learning in the other room about this. This is a three-week seminar that's going on about the Holy Spirit, who He is, what His role is in our life privately and corporately. And uh, while you are enjoying this 11 o'clock service, it is potential that in the next couple of weeks you could enjoy the 9 o'clock service and attend this class. I, it'll be invaluable to you. Um, this is an opportunity to discover what it actually means to have the Spirit living in you. See, if you don't know God personally, you are able to do religious things and then not really have any idea who you're doing that for. And, and this really ties into the third realization that we can make about human nature. I mean, it is possible to use him and not love him. It is possible to do his work and not know him. And related to that, this third one, it is possible that God provided and we don't know he has. In verses 32 through 35, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Another really sad part of the human condition is how quick we are to become ungrateful for what we have and how easily we forget how we got it in the first place. When they quote or attempt to reference the Old Testament, they say, what miracle will you perform? And then in verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know how they interpreted that? That Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus says to them, and anytime Jesus opens up a can of truly, truly, you've got to sort of go, oh no, I missed this one big. Because this is emphasis to say, man, you are missing a point. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. It was God. I can say this for my own life, but as a pastor over a couple of decades, I can tell you it is like super common. And as a, just a kind warning to those of you with great influence, if you're on your way to having great influence, especially if you're on your way to having great resources and money, people are going to kiss up to you and tell you that you're the greatest thing in the world. They're going to want your money, and so they're going to quit telling you the truth. All right? They're going to quit speaking up when you do something that's wrong because they're trying to live off of something that you have. And one of the really strange dynamics about people with great influence and wealth is that when you get in that headspace, you start to think you're the one who earned that money. You start forgetting how you got where you are. You start forgetting who is the fountain from all of this, the fountain from which all of this comes. You, you forget about that break that you got when you thought, I just don't know if this is going to work. And then, shazam, it worked. Now, all of a sudden, it's the sweat of your brow and the muscles of your arms and the brilliance of your brain because that's what everybody's telling you because they want your money they're helping you forget the, the moses people are like yeah moses gave us bread and jesus is like moses didn't give you anything moses was lucky to serve me do i have to have a history lesson with you people it says god gave you this bread the first I am saying of Jesus is this direct response to the people's demand for more bread. Boy, if this doesn't speak volumes to my life, thank you for all you've given me, Lord. More! I mean, am I alone in this? Isn't that the sad reality that we forget that Jesus is enough? And Jesus is trying to get them to think of spiritual, not physical food. God provided the food, not Moses. How quickly we forget the source of our blessings. And God, not this life's provisions, feeds the soul. Our physical needs are actually designed to point us to Him. Furthermore, when Jesus continues in John 6, verses 36 and 37, He makes it clear that both His divine call and our response are both gifts from the Father. We can't even take pride in the fact that we responded to the gospel. How else could you explain your ability to believe and your willingness to pursue relationship with Jesus when others that you know that are every bit as good a person as you are don't? 
Jesus says in verses 36 and 37, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There are people that don't believe, and there are people that do believe. And this scripture says the Father gave them to Jesus. The security of our salvation, the rooting of our salvation is all humbly packed inside this God who's pursuing us with all of his heart. You may wonder how someone could know they were going to go to heaven. Well, in part, Jesus says, uh, you come to me, I will never cast you out. It's rooted in the promise of Jesus to never cast you out. One of the reasons why this church was started was to help believers come to terms with a salvation that they've been given in Christ. I don't know what your denominational church background is. Perhaps you're a relatively recent convert and we're thankful for that. But many, many people have stopped going to church because they went to church and they never really got a a clear picture of the truth that they could rest about who they were in Christ. That they could know that if they died, they were actually going to go to heaven that very moment. You'd ask them and you'd ask a churchgoer, and you'd say, can you go to heaven? Are you, are you going to go to heaven? And, they, and they'll hem and haw a bit. Like, I, I hope so. This is not how Jesus wants this to actually be. He wants you to be sure. See, it's, it's the confidence in what Jesus has done for you that not only produces your security and your salvation, but it's also the fuel for which we move forward to imitate him and actually desire to please him. It's a gift that's been given, a peace that's been purchased, and yet many Christians aren't sure they're going to go to heaven. Well, rest assured that if you're genuinely walking with Jesus, you are secure. Jesus has provided. And it's nothing that you go, it's because I did the works of God. It's rooted in your belief and faith and trust in Him alone and what He did for you. And dying on the cross. That's what his purchase of salvation has secured for you. A confidence that if I'm genuinely in fellowship with Jesus, I'm going to be in that fellowship eternally. My favorite analogy along these lines has to do with a cruise ship. And if you've been at prison for a few years, you may have heard me use this before. And so post-vacation, I appreciate you allowing me to recycle a metaphor. Thank you. For our 25th anniversary, Carolyn and I went on a cruise to Alaska. And if you've never been on a cruise to Alaska, you should. All you have to do is save up money for 25 years and then reward yourself for enduring with a husband who has been a challenge for a quarter of a century. But seriously, uh, when you go on a cruise, you do not need to bring snacks or drinks, all right? As opposed to other vacation trips you might take, no need to bring coolers full of sodas and waters and things to eat. Uh, Cruises are all-inclusive. There's nothing sadder than the thought of a person on a cruise who's packed their own peanut butter sandwiches because they thought it wasn't all-inclusive. And they're sitting in their cabin, and you're upstairs eating shrimp and steak. I mean, think of that. You'd be heartbroken, like, dude, this was paid for. You just missed out. Analogously, This is what Jesus has given to the Christian. He's provided for you a way for you to know that one of the 
realized moments of our salvation is that you get to know you're going to heaven. This is the buffet. Jesus literally said, whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. If he's you're ever going to start a Christian cruise line, that would be a great tag, you know? Come on our cruise line, you'll never hunger or thirst. Jesus, on his death on the cross, paid for everything. And our, the good things we do that the people who were surrounding Jesus and trying to get him to give them some key to behavioral compliance that would let them be at peace with God, what they missed was that Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life. I'm going to satisfy your souls. And now, in retrospect, we look and go, you know, he also died to pay for a a fulfillment in our soul that we'll get in bits and pieces, as Larry Crabb is fond of saying. You get it in sips, not gulps. But we are moving to a place where Every day we can get the grace we need to proceed as a Christian. And we can also know that we're going to enjoy Him for eternity. He made it clear in verses 39 and 40 of John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is our confidence, a confidence that you proclaim today in worship from the New City Catechism. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes! To satisfy His justice, God Himself, out of mere mercy, reconciled us to Himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer and i think it's wonderful that when we talk about the bread of life we get to celebrate communion a sacrament in which we use bread it it just brings home the metaphor that hey we've got this bread we use that clearly will not fill you physically as big as the pieces may be you know that's for after church where you load up on the mother's day lunch This bread is supposed to help us see that Jesus is the one who can satisfy that deepest hunger in us. Not the things of this earth. You and I will satisfy our souls when we rediscover and discover again the love of Christ. We celebrate today what Jesus has done to feed our souls. And he said, I'm the bread of life, and if you come to me, you will not hunger. If you believe in me, you will not thirst. That doesn't mean you're not going to be thirsty. It means you'll always have this. You'll always have his presence with you. So it's just a matter of whether or not we want to recognize that presence, whether or not we want to tap into the resource that is that presence, whether we want to stop trying to find a way to make our souls work apart from him whether or not we're the people who want to know Him and not just use Him. And so today's communion for you may be a moment of repentance where you say, I have to, along with our pastor, conclude that there are way too many times in my life where I haven't really chased after you. I've been chasing after the stuff you said you'd provide. I've just been clinging to the crowd. And today He's calling you to a deeper friendship. So as we prepare for communion, why don't you talk to him for a few minutes about that? Let us pray.